Well, hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that's deep, but also easy to understand. If you would like to down- follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the lobby every Sunday. And as usual, if you have any questions that you would like answered, please feel free to send them in at info.grove.church. We thoroughly enjoy spending time with those questions, so we'd love for you to send them in to us. All right. Well, with that being said, we're going to go ahead. We got a packed week this week, six uh, six things we're talking busy, about. Busy. Oh, yeah. So we're going to jump right into this week's Bible talk. Uh, and so the first thing that we get to do is I get to say um, that I was wrong and I misspoke in previous episodes. So that's the awesome. The best thing is when you have to admit that you were wrong. Oh, it's just the most wonderful thing. Uh, nothing major, um, but I was talking when I was comparing Kings and Chronicles um, that Chronicles were written with mostly hindsight, whereas Kings were written as the events were going on. Um, I got Kings confused with another book that's actually not in the Bible, but it's referenced. And we'll get into that a little bit. Um, but there's a series of books called uh, The Chronicles of the Kings of Judah and The Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Um, these are used to help write First and Second Kings, but these those were the ones that were written um, as the kings were going. Uh, First Kings, however, is not, and we'll get a little bit into that because we're actually starting First Kings this week, um, and so we're going to highlight a little bit and introduce the idea of the book. Um, it's an interesting book because it's technically anonymous, but tradition tells us that it's written by the prophet Jeremiah. Um, and if you don't remember Jeremiah, I don't think we've gone over him so far in the podcast yet, yet. So we'll get to him. Jeremiah and Lamentations. So he's called. He's not called the weeping prophet for nothing. So it's true. Uh, but as best we can tell, he is the author of the book, which means it is written with hindsight, but it's written with a slightly different hindsight uh, than the the compilers of Chronicles. So Jeremiah is the prophet, and he is doing ministry um, really during the fall of Israel, or the fall of Judah, I guess, more accurately. So Jeremiah sees the people go into exile, whereas Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, the people who we think uh, wrote the book of Chronicles, were actually writing those things when Israel is coming back. So a little bit more of a hopeful note, whereas when Jeremiah is writing these things, it's kind of, it's, it, everyone's bummed out. This is not a good deal. So again, well, he's miserable. Lamentations. Jeremiah is miserable. So. Uh, one of, I don't want to spoil it, but one of my, the most interesting verses of the Bible, I think, is when Jeremiah um, is really hitting a low point and he calls out to the Lord and basically says, you tricked me into this calling. Like he, he said this was going to be awesome. And like, I don't yeah. know. I think there's something about... Um, I think there's something we said about like just ministry and, and not even vocational ministry, but just like as Christians, the ministry that we're all called to. Um, sometimes it's it's really great and sometimes it's not. So. Yeah, and it's going to be a fun book to work through, Jeremiah. I'm actually studying through the book of Jeremiah myself personally in my devotion time. So uh, there's a lot to it that I think will be yeah. uh, challenging and, and a lot of fun to read. So yeah, no but, spoilers allowed. No spoilers. Uh, but to continue on with First Kings, um, one of the interesting things about the book is it actually directly references the books that it it uses to compile the record of Kings. A lot of times when we're talking about um, books that are assembled over a long period of time, we can get, we can infer that there's some type of uh, historical record that they're working from, but it's not necessarily stated. Whereas in the book of Kings, which again, much like Samuel and Chronicles, um, it wasn't meant to be like, there's one book and there's the sequel. It's all supposed to be one book, but because of scroll length, it couldn't all be written down onto one. Uh, But a few of the books, that are referenced include Solomon's Proverbs, uh, the official court records, the book of the Acts of Solomon, the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, and the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And so those are uh, all throughout Kings. You'll see these things written. Uh, you'll see them referenced as saying, you know, it's as it's written in blank, 
this happens, that whole sort of thing. So it's a really cool thing to be able to look and uh, see the authors of the Bible, um, not just, you know, recalling things from oral tradition or recalling things from memory even, but really they're using um, the historical records of the day to talk about what yeah, happened. Yeah, and I think it's a good reminder because sometimes I think we will read scripture and be like, oh, this is just oral tradition. Well, no, it's not just oral tradition. And so uh, there's a lot more resources than just one person's own account. So it's always good to remember that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a few other things. Uh, the book covers a period of 411 years. It begins with uh, David in his old age um, and Solomon becoming king. And then it ends with uh, the final king of Judah uh, basically being a vassal to uh, the conquering king of Babylon. So, What's a vassal? A vassal. It would be someone, basically someone who's set up as, um, as a puppet king, if that makes sense. So they don't actually have... Uh, much power, but they retain the title. So kind of like Herod in the New Testament, if you remember that, where he doesn't have a ton of power, um, but he's the king. Or modern, uh, uh, this isn't actually a great example, but they, you can kind of compare it to like the the Queen of England, where uh, she doesn't really have any power, but at least as far Sorry, as I'm Queen, aware. Sorry, Queen. if you're listening to this. But I'm sure she Thank is. You. I just don't know words. So I know everyone else on our podcast listens and they have definitions. I'm just not that smart. For shizzle. Um, I don't know why I said that. That was weird. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> On that note. Uh, on that note. So to move forward, uh, we're going to hear a lot more about different kings um, in, in these books. And it, it, it'll be interesting because I think when we talk about Saul and David, uh, one of the things that we hit on a lot is even though Saul is, is – uh, we, we would call him a bad king and David's a good king, uh, they're both really complicated men. They both have highs. They both have lows. Um, Solomon is going to be uh, the same. We'll talk more about him next week as far as like a full retrospective of who he is uh, as the king. He's complicated again. He has highs and lows. Um, but with the book of First Kings, once or the book of Kings, once we start getting through it, uh, you're going to notice that there's a lot of bad kings without any highs. Like they're just they're just the worst and they're the worst until they die. And then their sons are also the worst. And so um, we're going to get through a lot of those. All of the kings that we're going to talk about can be put in either the good or the bad category. The good kings are kings who ultimately do good things for the Lord, but again, are complicated men. Some of the bad kings are complicated men with highs and lows, but um, a lot of them really from just the start of the reign to the end are uh, doing evil things and and God clearly is turning his back onto, uh, onto the people. And we see that uh, progress all throughout the book of Kings. Yeah. And uh, just to be prepared... Um... I'm not going to get into the bad kings. I'm going to spend time at the end of David's legacy uh, as we kind of continue forward through the reading this week. Uh, and jumping into First Chronicles 29, this is the end of First Chronicles, uh, the book that we have. But it really is kind of David. He's winding down. We've kind of looked through the course of his life and seen kind of the ups and downs and the, the difficulties with his family dynamics. Uh, and this comes to the point where he's getting ready to uh, pass the baton, so to speak, to Solomon and also help equip and prepare the temple for building uh, and so we see, I want to read this real quick and then uh, just share a couple thoughts that are probably more practical than contextual, but that's okay. Uh, it says this in First Chronicles 29, verses 1 through 3, right at the beginning, at the end of First Chronicles, it says, Then King David turned to the entire assembly and said, My son Solomon, whom God has cho- clearly chosen as the next king of Israel, is still young and inexperienced. Talk about a shout out. Talk about a vote of confidence for his son um, but really, we read that sometimes in the negative perspective, but I really do think it's just an observation. It's a rallying point for the for the uh, people of Israel to understand who God has called and established is young and experienced. So he needs and wants people and the people of Israel to rally around him. Uh, he says this, continues, says, the work ahead of him is enormous. For the temple he will build is not for mere mortals. It is for the Lord God himself. 
Use every resource at my command. I have gathered as much as I could for the building of the temple of my God. Now there is an enough gold, silver, bronze, iron, and wood, as well as great quantities of onyx and other precious stones, costly jewels, and all kinds of fine stone and marble. And then he says this, which I think is really cool. There's such a great leadership principle coming out of this. It says this, and now because of my devotion to the temple of my God, I'm giving all of my own private treasures of gold and silver to help in the construction. This is in addition to the building materials I have already collected for his holy temple. Uh, and again, like I said, Solomon, who first off is called young and inexperienced, David is recognizing he needs the support of the people of God. And he's really setting him up for success here. Yes. It's, it's, it's almost leaving a legacy right, handing off the baton to the next generation right. And then he's, he doesn't just work in his kingship and his reign to uh, accumulate all the materials needed to build the temple. Because remind, remember, God clearly told David, even though David had a passion and a heart to build his temple, God told David, you're not to build it. You are not worthy enough to build it because of all the wars and things that you've done. Your son Solomon is going to build it. And so David sees the need to set his son up for for a successful reign. And as we get into that uh, next week, you'll, we'll talk more about his his really high highs and some of his low lows. Um, but he just he doesn't just provide for the temple and his kingship, but then his, even his devotion to God. Um, I mean, you hear it say all the time, and I don't make this about money, but you know, you want to see where your heart is. Look at your checkbook uh, when it comes to the Lord and whether or not you're submitting. But David just says, "I'm giving all, all of my stuff that I can." to the same purpose of the temple. Uh, and he also gave it his own pocket. And then it continues on as you read in First Chronicles 29, that then he challenges God's people to give as well. And it says at the end of the first few verses of chapter 29 that all of the God's people rejoiced. Um, and so I just thought it was a really cool uh, dynamic as David's kind of coming to the end. He remembers and realizes what's important to do is to hand off the baton, not hoard it, uh, which again is just leadership. It's how are we raising up and, and helping those behind us uh, as followers of Jesus to be successful in following God's call. Yeah, I think there's something really powerful there as far as just leadership goes as well. And um, you know, as, as church leaders, it would be massively hypocritical if we were asking people to give uh, to the mission of God, and then we weren't giving at all. Um, so true. Yeah, and I think it's just one of those things where, um, as as leaders, we're called to demonstrate those things which we're asking people to do, and whether it be finances or really anything else, even just in, in simple um, in in job form, like you know, don't ask people to do things that you yourself are not willing to also do. And I think it's it's wonderful that David uh, first sets the example of saying. Here is all that I'm giving for the construction of the temple. Now I'm asking all of you to give so that this can happen as well. Um, and we're actually going to fast forward a little bit into Second Chronicles, um, and we're actually going to talk about I, I w- what I would say is the climax of the story of the building of the temple, and that is when the Ark of the Covenant is actually put down uh, in the temple. Uh, this week's readings in Second Chronicles are are all about the greatest triumph of Solomon's reign. Um, and I, when I say the greatest triumph, I mean when you're thinking of the good of Solomon, this is definitely the main thing that comes up. Is, mm. And this is accomplished pretty early in his reign. Um, and you also have to remember that for much of Israel's history, they were a nomadic people, so they wandered and they wandered around the wilderness um, even before, like the. Um, uh, the captivity in Egypt, they're wandering around Canaan, all these different things. For years and years, they've had this tabernacle, which is a portable temple, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a yeah. and it's a pretty extravagant tent, but at the end of the day, um, it's a tent. Like, that's what it is. It's a set up and tear down thing. Yeah. Um, 
And this is really just a monument to how great God is. And I think it's it's really great when you when you go through and you read through the verses of Second Chronicles. I would I would encourage you to actually read through when it talks about uh, what was used to construct the temple because it can it can feel a little bit dry when you're reading that. And I totally get it. Um, but the main takeaway is just keep in mind that they're sparing no expense. Like they're talking about the most expensive type of lum- lumber. They're putting gold everywhere they can. They everywhere they can. Like this temple is not just meant to be. Um, a structure that you can put the ark into, but it's really meant to be um, this incredible testament to who God is. And this is where the, really the presence of God is going to be housed uh, for generations of, yeah. of Israelites. So it's a really wonderful thing. I think for us today, um, particularly because we're living under the new covenant and, and the church doesn't have, uh, and when I say the church, I mean the building of the church doesn't have the same significance that the temple has. Um, like for instance, the, the church isn't really a monument to God as much as it is a gathering place, uh, for, for people to worship. Whereas the temple at this point really is kind of saying we want to house the glory of God. And so it's, it's a really beautiful thing. Um, like I said, there's no expense spared and, and I want to just read, uh, this passage from second Chronicles chapter five, verses two through 13. And like I said, this is when the ark of the covenant is brought in. Keep in mind, this is where the Ten Commandments are housed, um, among other things. This is the most holy thing, um, object in Israel. Uh, we talked about it a few weeks ago, but uh, Uzzah dies because he puts his hand onto it. Uh, when it's left in the hands of the Philistines, plagues come. Uh, when it's left in the hands of some of the Israelites, basically they just they just prosper and they don't even know what to mm-hmm. do with all of their wealth. It's an incredible, uh, it's an incredible thing. It's a testament to the covenant of God. It's really the symbolic, um, it's the symbol of God's covenant. And so now it's finally being brought into a permanent house. It's no longer wandering, but now it's it's going to be housed here. And so starting in verse two, it says, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's houses and the peoples of Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is the seventh month. And all of the elders of Israel came, and the Levites, Levites took up the ark. And they brought the ark to the tent, of meet, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the Levitical priests brought them up. And King Solomon and the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were, in the, were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord in its place, in the inner sanctuary of the house, the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim, which is um, an angel, essentially. Uh, sorry, I lost my place there. Then the the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And there they are to this day. And they they are there to this day. There is nothing in the ark except for two there was nothing in the ark except for the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt and when the priests came out of the holy place for all the priests were present and had, and had consecrated themselves without regard for their divisions and all the levitical singers Asaph Haman Jude Jehudith, I should have looked up how to pronounce these names beforehand, uh, their sons and kinsmen arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with the trumpets and cymbals and all other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, they said, for he is good, 
for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with the cloud. And I think it, it really just reads like, like the end of a movie mm-hmm. where they're, they're bringing the ark down the street. It says they sacrifice so many animals they can't even count, which sounds gruesome to us today. But again, remember, this is a, a symbol of the covenant. They're really showing like God is, he's for, he forgives sins and that's the symbol of it. They bring in the ark, which I think is just an incredible moment where they put it down and then they just begin to praise God. And I love the fact that, um, and I, di- I didn't catch it until I was just reading it j- just now, but so often we refer to it as the Ark of the Covenant. Um, but in this passage, it's referred to as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Or in other words, it's not just a random covenant, but saying the covenant that the Lord has made with us, this Ark symbolizes that covenant. And I just think there's probably no, there's no better thing to be singing when it says that the, the song they're singing was, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Yeah. And that really is what, what the ark is all about. That's what God's covenant is all about. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think I, I would, I would say the same thing that Evan said, like when, when we're in, in this in in second Chronicles looking at all of the materials and all of the things that were brought, uh, it, it reminded me of a quote that I read even this week. Uh, and one of the reading plans that I have that I haven't read yet, but I, for some reason opened it up this week, but it was just talking about sacred. We, we do not understand this word sacred as it was, held onto tightly in biblical times. And so um, it's, it's such a, a beautiful picture of how, how valuable, how sacred this ark was to God's people and, and how it's, it's such a rep- powerful representative uh, for us today. Uh, and the thing, even as we jump into Hebrews this week too, there's going to be uh, just a reminder of this priesthood and how we're no longer living in the old covenant, but it's a, Jesus is now the fulfillment of the old covenant and the continuation of it. Uh, and there's a passage in uh, chapter four, as we read just the f- verses 14 and 16 that I want to quickly highlight for us, but it talks about Jesus being the high priest for us. And uh, it says this in verse 14, it says, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There, will, there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. It's such a, a, a great reminder because in the Old Testament, you had a high priest who was in charge of maintaining uh, the covenant bond and relationship and leading his people, the sacrifices that were made, and uh, ensuring the atonement and all of these different promises being upheld to keep in mediation between God and his people. There was a middleman. But it says, now we have a high priest in Jesus. In other words, we don't need a middleman anymore. And we talked about this a while ago, but the temple, uh, the veil in the temple being torn from the top to bottom when Christ died, it was a symbol of God removing a middleman and having immediate access to God. It's just a reminder that Jesus is that access. We get to go to Jesus before God now, who is already interceding, as he says, on our behalf uh, and so we have this great high priest, who, and I love that it says, who understands our weaknesses and temptations, has gone through everything we face, because I have a tendency to look at Jesus through the, the eyes and the lens of he's divine, he's holy, he uh, doesn't, he didn't live the way I lived, and it's so far from the truth, because the way that Jesus understands our limitations, our weaknesses and temptations, is because he was human. And there's this this dichotomy that plays out between fully God and fully man, but his humanity was prevalent 
Uh, and because of that, because of the veil and the access that we now have because of this high priest who is Jesus, it, it means we now get to come boldly before the Lord in our current state without any issue. Uh, and we we have to understand that what he has already done now gives us access because there's nothing we can do. Yeah, He's already paid that price. He's already, oh, and, and again, even extended the invitation. Come have access to our father who loves us like crazy and uh, because of what I've done. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's such a, an incredible truth to remember that because of the work of Jesus, we now can have direct relationship with God and not in a perfect way. I don't think that'll happen this side of eternity, but... That'd be awesome. Though. That would be awesome. Uh, but the idea that, yeah, we no longer have to go uh, to an intermediary between us and God, I think it's a powerful truth to remember. Um, moving on into the book of Luke, we're actually talking about or we're reading through the Sermon on the Mount this week. And so I wanted to highlight... Uh, one passage from the Sermon on the Mount that kind of stands out, that stood out to me this week. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is really interesting because Jesus spends uh, a very large amount of time flipping things on their head. And so like like one of my favorite ones is, uh, you've heard it said, do not murder. And I always imagine that uh, everyone, in the cl- everyone in the crowd is kind of saying like, oh yeah, I- I've never murdered. I'm doing awesome with this. And then he's like, but if you've ever hated someone, you've committed murder in your heart. And all of a sudden it gets really quiet after that. Um, one of the things that Jesus flips on his head is this idea of love your enemies. I'm just going to read, it'll be pretty quick. I'm just going to read this passage and then we'll talk about it for a little bit and move on. But in Luke chapter six, verses 27 to 36, it says this, and this is Jesus speaking. Uh, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. I don't know why I can't say the word benefit today. Benefit. Benefit. Yeah. What, it's a what, biblical name. What are you going to do? Uh, and if you lend to those to whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And I think that last line really brings everything together. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And I think one of the things that we don't, that we don't challenge ourselves enough with is how do we show others the same love that God showed us? And I, I think it's... um. I think it's in Romans where it says, um, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Another way of saying that is, while we were still enemies of God, Jesus died for us. While we were still actively in rebellion against him, Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. And it's such an incredible, it it puts things into perspective when all of a sudden we, and we, we all have people who we just, we don't particularly care for. Um, I don't think right now I have enemies, but you know, I mean, maybe I do. Maybe some of you out there hate me. Who knows? I do. But <laughs> there you go. Aaron's my enemy. Um, my arch nemesis. But I think it's really interesting that we, we as Christians are called to show love to everyone. And we can think of showing love as like, oh yeah, well, I love my friends and I'm, I'm very good to my friends. And I do anything for my friends. Or oh, yeah, I love my family. I would do anything for my family. And what Jesus is saying is like, okay, everyone would do anything for their friends or for their family. Um, 
how about you try doing things for those who you know actively work against you? And, and one of the best pieces, this is um, doesn't fully line up, but one of, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got from my dad is that it's uh, it's really hard to be mad at someone that you're praying for. And so I've, I've actually had situ- yep. I've actually had situations where I'm really angry with someone, um, and I just it's almost become instinctual now because I've had to do it a few times. Um, but now it's just like, okay, I'm going to pray for them. And I'm not, not in like, you know, imprecatory, imprecatory Psalms where it's like, God dashed their head against the curb or whatever <laughs> yeah. it is, but like, like honest, earnestly pray, um, God, would I just pray that your love would be made so much more real in their lives, all, all these different things. And there's something really incredible about being able to step back from people who uh, maybe they're enemies, maybe they're just people you don't get along with, whatever it may be, but actually genuinely showing love to people who you don't expect anything from, anything back from. Um, and it's it's the same way that God loves us. Mm-hmm. God doesn't necessarily, he's, God's not, God loves everyone and he's not getting at anything back from a lot of different people. Um, it's an incredible amount of love. And as Christians, we're called to show the same love to everyone, not just the people who show love to us. Yeah, so good. And I love, I love the, the even the example you gave Evan of like, what do you pray for those people? You know, and it's, yeah, God, that your love would show all the more brightening lives. I love that you, you give that example because I think sometimes that's the easiest thing. Oh, yeah, I'm going to pray for my enemies. I'm going to pray for those who curse me, whatever. But then it's almost a selfish prayer. Uh, you know, vindicate me, oh Lord, right. and you know, cast your judgment on them. And it's, I mean, I, I've always said it this way too, and I've heard it this way: like, pray, pray for others what you would want prayed for you, especially those who you don't see eye to eye with. Uh, and I love even the line, uh, you know, and I, just to bring it up, you know, um, for he is kind to the ungrateful. I don't know why that that phrase stands out to me at the end of verse 35 there, but I think of my kids when I give them something they're ungrateful. I don't like, then I get righteous, self-righteous and be like, well, fine. If you're not going to be grateful for things you have, why am I going to get you more? But it says he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So be merciful, even as your father is merciful. So, man, I, that 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 line challenges me, and I don't like it. So I'm going to delete that from these notes. The Sermon on the Mount um, is one of the most challenging portions of Scripture yes. in the Bible. And it's, in and a it's good one way. that's the most – it's worth the most revisitation, Absolutely. I think, in our lives. So, uh, and then kind of to wrap up this week, I want to take a moment and just highlight Psalm chapter 9 and just the first two verses – uh, because I think they're just a fitting challenge and reminder, even coming out of uh, some of these dialogues. And, and just a little bit of an insider information, Evan and I don't pre-plan what we're going to talk through. We each just kind of take portions and segments and say, I want to highlight this one or this one. And then we sit down together and like, oh, these things are actually fitting really well together. So uh, take it for what it's worth. But Psalm 9 verses 1 and 2 say this, I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all the marvelous things you have done. I will be filled with joy because of you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. And it's such an incredible picture of choice, of a willingness to remember all the good things God has done, even in the hard times, even in the face of ungrateful people. Are we willing to celebrate and remember who God is and what he's done? Because as we remember him, I mean, this isn't, this was, again, was not planned, but just the way it works. If we can remember God's mercy, we will then be more merciful. Uh, and the psalmist, one of the things, again, this is, and I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, talking about a psalm of David versus of David, a psalm. Uh, a psalm of David literally means it's this is the one that he's not yet experiencing. I believe that's, I always get them mixed up, but he's not yet experiencing what he's writing about. It's a willing mental choice, a cognitive ability. And when he says, I'll praise you, Lord, with all my heart, I will tell of all the marvelous things you've done. It's literally this picture of the whole inner self uh, to be engaged in loving and praising God, whether in private or in public. And it's such a tension to live in that we, you and I get an opportunity every day to choose. 
how we're going to respond to our situations. And the psalmist, as the psalm continues on, you see there's kind of ups and downs in it. But he just simply says, Lord, I'm going to choose to praise you. I will praise you. It's, it's a decision I'm making today, uh, and, I, and I will gladly do it, even though I'm not yet experiencing the joy and the hope and the peace that, that I know I'm going to have. Right. But I'm going to choose in the midst of what I feel and what I face to, to praise you. Well, yeah, I can't think of... Uh a better way to wrap up this week's uh, this week's podcast. Um, just as a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only podcast of the Grove Church. You can check out all of our different resources and podcasts on our website at grove.church. Um, also, do us a favor, leave a review uh, on whatever app you're listening on. It just helps get the word out there and kind of grow this community of people listening to the Bible. Uh, with that being said, we hope you all enjoyed this week's episode, and we will see you next week.